Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Scripture reading this morning will come from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is good. He is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give him thanks. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You know, I've always been a fan of Psalms 100. When I first started doing some writing things from time to time, uh, whether it be, you know, the emails that I have now or some blog stuff that I had written, I would, I would write that in the signature. I would sign my name, and Psalms 100, I guess you could say, was my, was my favorite passage of Scripture. I've always thought it was a, a, a great code of conduct to live by. When you read through those short, simple five verses, serve the Lord, know him, we are his people, be thankful, and God is good all the time. There are other passages of scripture that I've looked at over the years, kind of as a, again, for lack of a better word, a, a code of conduct a little bit. I I look at Romans 12 often, verses 9 through 21. I have that <clears throat> written out in my Bible as the, the Christian brand, how a Christian is supposed to act. But as I was preparing for this lesson this morning, it was a different code, if you will, that, that caught my attention. Over my whiteboard in my classroom, I have a, a print um, on, on some on some. Fancier paper, I guess. I don't know the proper word for it. The stamped from a company called the Old Try. It's a company that makes these things from time to time. And on it is a code of 17 words. And it's fitting, I guess, that I'm a, I'm a government teacher because this code belonged to former President Bush, the old, the elder Bush, our 41st president. And upon his passing in 2018, his biographer, John Meacham, labeled it the most American of creeds. And as I sat in my room, and I've done it numerous times at my desk, looking up at that framed print above my board, I thought about how those 17 simple words are a wonderful code of conduct for us to live by as people, but also as Christians. When you look at that and you tie it into the Scripture and what the Scripture has to say. So this morning, that's what I want to look at those seven things that are in George Bush's code, if you will, and then bring them into Scripture and see how they can affect our lives as well. Number one on this list is tell the truth. A simple, basic admonition, one that as parents we tell our children. I have no doubt that at some point in time, perhaps you... You got in trouble, maybe you got a whipping or two when you were a child because you failed to tell the truth. 
And it was important. Your parents wanted you to know the importance, even if it was just a little thing. Something simple. They wanted to stress the importance of what it meant to tell the truth. We read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 37 when Christ in his Sermon on the Mount is talking about oaths and he says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. A Christian should be plain in their speech. Proverbs 12 verses 22. Or verse 22 we read, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. We are, as Christians, to tell the truth, in all things, to tell the truth, not just when it's suitable or when it furthers something that we want, but we're to be honest. And more so than that, when I read this and I think about how it affects us as Christians, tell the truth. I think about what the truth is. As Christians, we're not just supposed to tell the truth and the fact that we need to be honest. That's no doubt we need to do that. But we need to tell the truth as in we need to tell others about the truth. What is that? Well, of course, John 17, 17 is a passage you could go to in which Christ is speaking there. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Thy word is truth. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to tell others. Not to change it, and we see that in society today, that happens, unfortunately. So many people want to change the truth. They want to make it fit the mold of what is popular. But notice what John 17, 17 says there. It says, sanctify them by your truth. What is it? To be set apart. What The truth and our willingness to, A, share the truth, our willingness to be honest people when we share the truth, It sets us apart as Christians. So when I think about a code of conduct in which I'm going to live in a world and I'm going to be different and I'm going to be separate, what sets me apart? I don't want to be separate and set apart because of myself. I want to be separate and set apart because of the truth that I espouse. I look in John chapter 12 and verse 48, and Christ speaking there again says... That the words which I have spoken will judge them on the last day. His word, his truth will judge us. It's our rubric. And I've used this example before, a simple teaching example. And the fact that you give a a project to a class and you give them their rubric so they know how they're going to be great. It's not up for debate. They can say, if you do this particular part of the assignment, well, you'll get the maximum points. But if you leave this part out, well, you'll get, you know, X amount of less points. They know how they're going to be graded. We, too, as people and as Christians, know what our rubric is. We know how we're going to be graded when it comes to the judgment, and it's through Christ's word. He tells us that. My word will judge them on the last day. His truth, our ability to live it, our ability to share it, and our ability to be honest about it. So number one, tell the truth. Number two, on this code, don't blame people. So often in society, we see this happen, unfortunately, more and more. We shrug off responsibility and accountability. We look to pass the blame to someone else. It's not my fault. Yet in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, we read, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Of ourselves. I give an account when I stand before my Creator. I will give an account of myself. No one else. The Lord will know who's to blame. 
Further, Paul, when he wrote his letter to Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we read, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. We have to judge ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. I have to be willing and I have to be accountable. You know, we, we say, I say something to our guys out at, out at baseball. You know, I'm a baseball coach and, and we talk about a lot of different things and we talk about ability. For you to be a good baseball player or any type of athlete, I suppose, you need to have a little bit of ability. That helps. Okay, and so we talk about the importance of, of honing and practicing in order to help strengthen and to help broaden your ability. But at the same time, one thing that we like to preach to them, for lack of a better word, is that the best type of ability is accountability. Because if I don't examine myself, myself rather, and determine, am I working hard enough to get better? And this is in this instance. But if I'm working hard enough to get better, am I, did, I, did I put in the work that I needed to? Am I striving towards the goal that I've set out for myself? But at the same time, you could apply it to us as Christians. We have to hold ourselves accountable. I can't blame people. You know, it's just been, I, I can make excuses regularly. And of course, this goes for any aspect of life. But as Christians, we can do that. We can make excuses. We can say, well, you know, I just don't have the time or I'm really busy or... Or we can hold ourselves accountable. And so often, sadly, when I think about this too, you know, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and we're told there that we sin when we're drawn away by our own lusts. Right? We're drawn away by what we want. So often we see people in today and we want to blame someone else for our sin. You know, they just put me in a real tough spot or they tempted me or they didn't do this or that. And yet, we don't sin because of what someone else does. We sin because we choose it. You think of Adam and Eve. It's the greatest example. Eve easily could have said, you know, this serpent, he was so, you know, cunning. And he made such a great argument. What was I supposed to do? Adam, this, this woman you gave me, she, she gave me the fruit. Lord. But God didn't see it that way. He didn't say, well, you know, you make a good point. Maybe I shouldn't have given her to you. Adam was to blame for his own choices. He could have said no. And so we've got to make sure as we examine ourselves and as we view ourselves, we don't let, we don't allow ourselves to pass the blame to other people. Oh, this is the situation I'm in and it's not my fault. I thought about, and I've thought, and I've shared this with our, <coughs> with our college group over the years. You know, there are different stages of life that you've been in, and some of you have experienced more than others. But at times, you think, if I can just get past this particular stage of life, things will be easier. Right? You do that, and I may have mentioned this before. You know, you're in high school, and you face certain temptations and other things. We won't talk about middle school. That has many of its own problems. But you're in high school and you have temptations and other things. And you think, if I could just get past high school. And then you go on to college. And, of course, maybe some of those temptations you had went away. Maybe they didn't. But now you have new ones. And you say, boy, if I could just get out of college, I'll, I'll live on my own. And maybe I'll get married. And, and things will be, 
And then there's new temptations, new problems, new struggles. And we can't blame our situation and we can't blame our circumstance. I heard it said one time, going back to Adam and Eve, so often we think, if my circumstance were different, if I had better circumstances, then I'd be better. And yet we forget, we neglect to realize that it was in paradise that man fell for the first time. And so we say, oh, if my circumstances were better, Adam and Eve's circumstances couldn't have been better. And yet it was there that they fell. We have to be accountable. We can't blame others. Number three, be strong. (laughs) You know, strength is so much deeper than these physical feats of strength. It's about being able to withstand in times of struggle. It's about being able to overcome some of those circumstances that we may be in. I love reading Moses' words from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31 when he says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Likewise, Paul to the... uh, the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We should remain strong because we know the Lord is on our side. We know that he allows us to overcome. <clears throat> you know, when I was a young boy and I thought of strength, especially biblically, oh, I thought of Samson. You know, he's strong. And as a young boy, you know, you can vision this in your mind. And, of course, you had some, some coloring sheets in your, in your classes as a boy in which they depict what Samson would be like. But, man, he's, he's got all these muscles, and he's strong, and he can defeat an entire army of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He's chained up to these pillars, and he can pull them down on an entire... Wow, that's strong. But as I get older and I read through Scripture, I kind of view strength in a different way. When I think of strength, I think of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who we read in Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18, that they're being told by a king that you're going to bow down to a statue or I'm going to burn you alive. And their response was, we're not going to bow down to the statue because our God can deliver us. And then they say these three words of strength. But if not, but if not, if God doesn't, we don't impose our will upon God. God makes decisions for himself for what is best. And if he chooses not to deliver us, we're still not, O king, we're not bound to this statue. That's what strength is. I think of Esther there in Esther chapter 4 and verse 16 when she's, when she's going through her preparation to go again. She's going to go talk to a king, a powerful man. And she's fasted and she's prepared herself. And then she says those words at the end of verse 16, if I die, I die. And we've got to remind ourselves, and I try to do this for myself, we read through scriptures sometimes, especially these Old Testament accounts, and they seem so amazing. And so we can't wrap our mind around it because there are miracles and there are a variety of different other things. I mean, the miracle itself of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a fire and not a hair being burned. And we, re- we think to ourselves sometimes and we get lost in the fact that this is just a story that we read. And we neglect to realize that these are real people that walked the same earth that we did, that suffered these real things. 
And yet they showed amazing strength in times of struggle. And thank the Lord that I've never had the threat of being burned alive or I've never had the threat of going before someone and thinking, if this doesn't go well, I'm probably going to die. It's never happened to me before. And Lord willing, it never will. But we have to, I think, again, as we examine ourselves, ask what type of strength do we have? Do I have a but-if-not type of faith? In which if things don't go my way, if I find myself really in the thick of it, do I have the strength that says, but if not, I want to overcome this, I need to get through this, but if not, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to give up the faith. That's strength. Number four, do your best. A great three words. We tell it all the time to people, hey, you need to do your best. We tell, I tell that to my students in my classroom. Hey, just make sure you do your best. We tell it to our athletes in, the, in, in, in baseball. We tell it to our children. Hey, all that matters is that you're doing your best. And it's important that we strive to do that. But at the same time, we need to, again, examine what our best is. God doesn't ask us at any point in time to be perfect. But he does ask us to strive to obtain perfection. And I think that's often where we fall short. We think because we're not required to be perfect, then I'm given an out to make mistakes. You know, no one's perfect. I messed up again. All sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we neglect to realize that you should be striving to obtain perfection. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Further, in Titus 2.7, it says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Are we striving to do the Lord's will every day? Is that what our best looks like? Is it, Or is our best, have we determined our best is just, well, you know, I'm better than others. I mentioned this in our college class last week. So often we compare ourselves to others around us. We don't compare ourselves to the standard that is God's standards. We compare ourselves to the world and we say, boy, I'm a lot better than a lot of people. As far as me adhering to God's will, I do a lot of different things. I go to I go to worship regularly and I and I participate in other things and yeah you know I make plenty of mistakes but I'm a whole lot better than a lot of other folks so I don't think my mistakes are that big of a deal. But that's not our best. Our best should be striving towards perfection. Our best should be seeking to do the will of God because we read in Matthew 7:21 Christ says there not everyone who says to me what lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he that does the will of my father which is in heaven. I can't, oh, I love God. I love God and I'm just doing my best. That's not enough if his best, if our best is not what God requires. I dare say perhaps, and I don't know this for sure because the scripture doesn't tell me, (laughs) but perhaps Cain's sacrifice was the best of his garden. He put forth his sacrifice, the fruits of the field, 
And maybe that was his best. Maybe he chose his best fruits, vegetables, what have you, whatever he put in the sacrifice. Maybe it was his best ones. And yet, at the end of it, God was displeased with Cain. Why, Lord, I gave you my best. Because it wasn't what God required. And if my best is short of what God requires, then my best is not enough. My best can be better. And so we have to remind ourselves of that when we think about do your best. Yeah, that's a great admonition. But we need to examine what our best is, and we need to be sure that our best meets the standard of what God requires. It's us striving for that perfection to do God's will. Number five is try hard. And you could perhaps lump this in with the previous one, right? Do your best, try hard. That sounds fairly similar. <clears throat> but I think it's worth standing on its own because for me, try hard means, it means putting forth the proper effort. Try hard has to do with what our effort looks like. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, he said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you are able to obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do up to obtain a perishable crown, but for we, but we for an imperishable crown. Further in Colossians 3.23, he says, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. Do it heartily. Am I trying hard? Am I really putting forth that effort? <clears throat> you know, as, a, as an athlete in, in high school, there were some words that you didn't like to hear from time to time from your coach. You know, if he ever said, it, whatever sport you were playing, it doesn't matter, to get on the line, that meant the, the, the sideline or the baseline or the foul line. Some running was going to occur after that, and it usually wasn't going to be very pleasant. But now that I'm in, I'm on the other side of it, right? It's nice for multiple reasons. One, because I don't have to do the running anymore. I get to watch. But two, because more so than just for some conditioning to make sure your team is in good shape, you can find out some things from watching these people run. <clears throat> and I've read this one time, and I've thought about it. Are they just trying not to be last? Are they simply trying, I don't want to be last. As we run these sprints, I don't want to be last. Are they just trying to finish? Maybe there's a time on it that you're using. Are they mad because they have to run? Or are they trying to win every sprint? And when I think about these and I compare it to our life as Christians, when you look at our race, that is this life that Paul talks about, we run to receive a prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Are we simply trying not to be last? You know, I don't mind giving up opportunities to do the Lord's work as long as I'm doing more than someone. And I mentioned that a moment ago. I'm comparing myself to others. You know, I don't do all sorts of other stuff, but I do more than others, so I'm doing just fine. I'm doing enough. That's just me trying not to be last, trying to slip in right before the last guy. Are you just trying to finish? I'm content with meeting the minimum requirement of Christianity. I talk about that to, to my, my athletes as well. You know, you can't come in and just say, I'm going to do, okay, we're going to be here. What time are we leaving? And then I'm leaving and I'm out the door. My dad used to get on to me that in school all the time. I'll admit it. You come home and you do your homework that's assigned to you, and that's it. 
which as a student makes a lot of sense to me. Why would I do more? But his point was, it's going to be hard to get much better at something if you're just doing the minimum requirement. As Christians, are we doing the minimum requirement? I'm just, I'm just trying to finish. Trying to inch my way across the finish line. Am I mad because I'm having to run sprints? I miss parts of the world. I put my hand to the plow, Luke 9.62, but I'm looking back. And I miss parts of the world. I'm mad that I'm in this race sometimes and I get frustrated. And sometimes the church frustrates me and I just think, I don't know why the church won't just conform, you know, and give in to certain worldly things. It would be easier and we wouldn't make as many people mad and we could grow our numbers. And so I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm annoyed that I'm in the race. Or am I trying to win every single sprint? Am I striving daily to do what God requires? You know, I think about this try hard mentality sometimes and I think about our worship. <clears throat> I think about our worship and how it ties in. Is God a priority? The effort that we put forward is God a priority when it's convenient. You know, we often change our schedules around to go to an event. Like, you know, I had something planned for Saturday, but now I've got, you know, tickets to the ball game or tickets to a concert or whatever it may be. So I'm going to change my schedule. You know, I may call in sick from work because now I've got something better to do. And yet at the same time, do we do that when it comes to our worship attendance? You know, and... Do we make excuses? I'm just not feeling great. I don't want to get everyone else sick. You know, and I'm not telling you that you need to come to worship and cough on everyone and get them sick. But at the same time, there are times when we're too sick to come to worship, but we're not too sick to go to the ball game or to go to the concert or to go to work because I don't want to have to take off and it's going to be a problem. And surely it's not because we care more about getting the folks in the assembly sick and we don't care about our coworkers or anyone else. It's easy. We have this out. You know, it's been a really long day. Been a really long day for me. And I'm just, you know, we've got the live stream. And thank goodness we do. There are people watching it right now who are homebound, sick, can't make it, can't move about. But, you know, I've had a long day. And I'm just going to stay home and watch the live stream. You know, and if COVID taught us anything at all, it taught us that it's just not the same. And that shouldn't be surprising because it's not the same in any avenue of life. You know, I would say I hate to bring this up, but I told you earlier not to lie. So, you know, I was at the Tennessee-Alabama game last year. And I could have stayed home and watched it on the live stream. They air it on television. But, you know, as the game ended and it went my way, I was hugging some strangers I was high-fiving people I've never talked to in my life. I was standing on the field with thousands of other people. I didn't know what to do when I got down there. My brother and I got down to the field, and we stood around for a while, and I asked him, I said, hey, how do we get out of here? I knew how to climb over the wall and get down, and then we're just kind of standing. I didn't know what to do next. It was an experience, though, that I won't forget, the sights, the smells, the sounds. It was amazing as a fan. And yet you and I both know when it comes to worship, it's not the same being at home as it is here. And I use this example. Years ago, I've overseen the college work here for five or six, maybe seven. I kind of lose count. It all runs together. 
And years ago, <clears throat> here at West Huntsville, we had a fall seminar. I think it was in the fall. It was one of those times in which we had a weekend seminar, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on Friday night, we had a college student who was not from here, not a, not a commuter, not a Huntsville native from out of state. And on Friday night in college, I remember, you know, being in college on a Friday night, and I didn't, you know, live a, live a heathen lifestyle, but, you know, I had things to do. And on Friday night, they were here for our seminar. And on Saturday, they were here for our seminar. And that was four or five years ago. But I remember that. I was edified by that. I was encouraged by that to the point that I still remember it today. Had I stayed home and watched the live stream, I don't get that encouragement. I don't get that edification. Because it's different when you're here. So do we try hard? And that's just one example in our attendance. But do we try hard in every aspect of our Christianity like we do for other things? Do we make it a priority like we do for other things? Number six, forgive. Forgive. The world, unfortunately, is filled with cancel culture, media outrage. The concept of forgiveness has kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. Everyone seems to be waiting in the weeds for a mistake, and they're nowhere to be found when forgiveness is is to be handed out. To say, "I, I repent and I'm sorry, for some people, that's just not enough anymore. I think of Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, when Christ spoke here and he said, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. We look for opportunities to forgive rather than shying away from such a responsibility. Ephesians 4, 32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as Christ forgave you. Do we have the same mind about forgiveness that Christ did? We know, we read in Luke chapter 23 that he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, those there present weren't forgiven in that moment just because Christ spoke it to be true. They had to repent. They had to ask the Lord for forgiveness. But he had the mindset of, I want that for them. When somebody wrongs us, do we have the desire for them to repent? Or are we content in our own anger? You know, I well, they just wronged me and I, I want to be mad at them. Or do we desire, I so badly want them to repent, I want them to ask forget for whatever it is. No matter how bad it hurt. Do we have that mindset? Because no matter how bad it hurt us, keep in mind that the Lord is hanging on a cross after his beating as he lays there, as he hangs there and dies. And yet his mindset was, I surely hope that they will repent. And if they do, I forgive them. If they'll just say, this was a mistake and I repent and I need forgiveness for it, then they're forgiven. Because that's the mindset and that's the heart that he had. And do we carry the same one when it comes to forgiveness? The last one, number seven, stay the course. Stay the course. We all go through times of various struggles, trials, temptations. It's not uncommon to feel downtrodden sometimes with our our lot in life. In 2 Timothy 4, 
verses 7 and 8, Paul says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Notice Paul's letter to the churches within the New Testament. And notice further John's letters to the seven churches of Asia in the beginning of Revelation. At no point in time do these men or any others say, I am praying for you that you will no longer suffer. Or I am praying for you that the the troubles and the trials and the tribulations that you're in right now will vanish away. In fact, John told them that he was with them in the tribulation. Why do they not? They don't want him to end suffering? No, but Paul and, and, and John and, and the other apostles and Christ understood that in a fallen world, this is an impossibility. I could pray that you'll never face any trouble, but it's not going to happen because it is the devil's world. So it's not going to happen. Rather, what did they do? They admonished them and they encouraged them to stay strong through it all, to keep the faith through it all, to endure, to stay the course. And you think about some of these, you know, there are people throughout history that I admire a little bit for their contributions, for the type of men or women that they were. One of those is Winston Churchill. I find him a fascinating character to study. And he at once said, To each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared and unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. And I think about that, and I think about some characters throughout some, some, and I say characters as as if they're made up and they're not, of course, some, some people throughout Scripture. Joseph. How long was Joseph supposed to endure? How long? I'm sold by my brothers into slavery, and then I've got a situation where I'm climbing up the ladder with Potiphar, and then his wife does what she does. I've done nothing wrong. I'm in prison for it, and then I'm in prison for a while, and then I I have something maybe go my way. Hey, remember me. More years go by. We read through Joseph's account in those, you know, five to ten chapters that we read there in the book of Genesis, but this was years and years and years of time. How long was he supposed to endure? And yet through every single trial, he stayed true to God. And then his finest hour came. I think of Peter, walked with the Lord. And then yet in his, in the Lord's most pressing hour, Peter denied him. But he didn't let that particular act define him. In Acts 2 verse 14, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. And what were those words that followed? He preached unto them salvation. He preached unto them Jesus. He helped establish the church. This church we assemble with today. He had his finest hour. I think of Paul. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. Without food, in peril, sleepless, the list goes on. And yet, at the end of his life, he was able to say what we just read moments ago to Timothy. That I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, stayed the course. Laid up for me as a crown of righteousness. And he could know that. It wasn't a guess, and that wasn't him gloating. He could know that because he had stayed the course. And these men and so many like them, they did that. 
They were defined by their finest hours because they kept the faith in their darkest ones. And we may not have a finest hour type of moment. I don't say that to say, well, everyone has, you know, as Churchill brought up there, a finest hour here on earth. But I do know this. We're all going to stand before the judgment of our Creator. And in that moment, either we're going to prepare ourselves for an eternity of pain and regret, or we will relish in the moment of what is our finest hour. As God says to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If nothing else, that, without question, will be our finest hour. But it only comes to us if we, if we stay the course. Seven simple things, 17 words in length. Tell the truth. Don't blame people. Be strong. Do your best. Try hard. Forgive. Stay the course. Seven simple things, and yet a great admonition for us as we examine our own lives. How are you living up to this simple code of conduct, of ethics? Perhaps you're in the body of Christ, but you haven't been living up to his standard. And when I say his, I mean Christ's standard. I don't necessarily mean this one. This is just simple things that are great to live by. But you haven't been living up to Christ's standard. You've fallen short of what he requires. And there's no better time than now, as I heard a preacher once say, while we're on time side of eternity, to make that right. Just start living up to the standard that he has set forth. Start doing our best to achieve perfection, to obtain perfection, striving, reaching for that goal, trying hard to do so, staying the course in times of trouble. Or perhaps some of you this morning may be here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you'd like to be. Well, you've heard the word preached, but you've got to be willing to live by its precepts. You've got to believe it. The the fact that it's the infallible word of God, that there are no mistakes within it. That it is the key to salvation because it tells us how to get there. It is our rubric by which we will be judged. We must repent of past sins. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I was a terrible person before, but it means that from now on, I will live for one thing and one thing only. And I've got to turn away from those little, maybe those pet sins that I had. Maybe I blamed people in the past for certain things, and I've got to get rid of them. I've got to confess that Christ is indeed the Son of God, that he sat on the cross with a forgiving heart, that he died for me. I've got to be baptized to wash away my sins, because that's what Christ told me to do that I would wash away my sins and I would raise up to walk in newness of life. But then, of course, I have to do that. I have to walk in newness of life. I have to live by the code that is in His Holy Word. I become a Christian that way because Christ tells me that's how. And then, if I do that, if I do those things and I live by the code that is His Word, I can know just as Paul did, at the end of my life, that I fought a good fight, I finished the race, stayed the course, and there will be laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And I can know that because he tells me I can. If anyone has any need this morning, won't you come? As together we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, 
Please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.